Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show, live every Wednesday. And today's topic is gonna be one that I haven't touched on in a little bit, but that I am in full support of, and that's mentorship. Uh, before I do, by the way, if there's any live questions that you wanna shoot out in the comments, like always, just drop them down below, and I'll be happy to, uh, to answer them. So one of the biggest things that breeds success, or that I guess dictates whether you be successful in life, I think, is whether or not you have someone who is there mentoring you. And they don't have to be physically there. You can be talking to them once in a while, you can be watching their videos, reading their blog, whatever. There's lots of ways you can get involved in uh, either being a mentor or being mentored by someone. I think the secret to doing well in anything is finding someone who does it well and then emulating what they do. And maybe put a twist on it, maybe emulate two different people and combine the best of both worlds. But that's been, for me, the cornerstone of my success. Everything I've been able to do, despite, you know, I talked on this channel before about the fact that I've never paid for courses, technically, to train in real estate. I've never paid for mentorship. But that doesn't mean that I haven't surrounded myself with tons of different people who were actively in real estate or actively in business, asked them targeted questions, taken you know the best of what they're doing and implemented it in my own business and in my own life. So big fan of um, mentorship. And so that's what today's video was about because I keep getting this question again and again and again on Instagram. And it's, it's not that I don't wanna respond to those people who are watching and they want the lengthy response. They write me a, a long book and I, I wish I could give them like, hey, here are the 10 things you have to do. But if I did that for every person, I'd have no life. That would just be all I would be doing. But the secret is really emulating success of others. That's how you succeed. If you wanna do well at real estate, find people who are doing that and emulate what they're doing. Uh, learn what things they do well and, uh, and then go from there. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Good to see you on. William, happy Wednesday. Good to see you on as well. George Ronez, would you vote for Trump if you were American? I don't know. Um, I'm Canadian, so I don't have the right to vote for either. So I don't really get an opinion or a say, but um, it's tough. Like from an from a economics perspective, I'm probably aligning with like, we don't have a Republican or Democratic party in Canada, but probably, I'm probably Republican um, in my, you know, economic policy, but not everything I, I stand for or believe in is Republican. There are a lot of things that Republicans stand for that, that I don't. Um, social issues, as an example. Some of the social issues I definitely don't align Republican, but I don't know, it's tough. Um, I think Trump's a good, he's crazy by the way. He's a good businessman though. He's done fairly well. He's been able to build a multi-billion dollar brand, right? Um, so I think from a business perspective, it's pretty good. I like that he hasn't gone to war. He's the only president to date that hasn't started or engaged in a, in a war during their, their term. Um, because he's pro-business, war doesn't make sense. War is not good for economy. Stability is good for an economy, right? So that's something that I'm, I like about the way that he's governed. I like that he's gotten a lot done um, in some of the areas that he said he would. So I don't know. I think Joe Biden's a little old and uh, he, he may win, and if he does, cool. Um, I don't care either way. It doesn't really have a huge impact on me, but uh, I've been watching sort of the election results uh, sort of unfolding just every so often on Instagram. People are posting and have been kind of following it. It looks like um, Joe Biden is closing in on the win, so who knows what'll happen. I'm sure that uh, Trump 
will have a some sort of rally and recount of some sort. I'm sure that they'll be, you know, recounting all the votes for the next month and challenging the decision either way. Even if he wins, I'm sure the Democrats will try to challenge the decision. So whatever happens, um, we're sure to not have closure for some time, and there's probably going to be a good amount of volatility and unrest, which, if you're an options trader, is fantastic. Um, you live on the volatility, right? So if you are a stock hacker, you're loving this. If you're a real estate investor, you probably don't care that much because real estate's a long-term focused piece and people are gonna pay their rent regardless of who gets elected. Uh, the rent will likely be paid on average. So it doesn't largely affect us. So more in the public markets, you have that volatility. In the real estate side, not so much. From a long-term fundamentals perspective, I think Republicans better for real estate over a five or 10 year period. Same for the economy in general. It's not necessarily, like the Democrats are probably better for the average person. Like for the bottom half of America, Democrats will, will do more. Um, if you're in the top half though, and you make you know 60,000 a year or more, you will probably be financially worse off. That's just a fact. So you gotta say, hey, is it worth it for me to pay more tax to help more people? Um, you know, Overall, what will that do for our economy if we don't focus on the capital growth? And then what does that do for the Canadian economy is more what I'm concerned about, given that the US is our largest trading partner. And I also have um, some investment in the US and some plans to invest further in the US. So I'm mostly staying out of the election. And again, like elections don't have that big of an impact on you know, investing decisions. They, they really don't. If you look at the, there used to be an argument that Republican um, candidates tended to, if they won, tended to go for, um, you know, the market was a little bit stronger. But if you look at the statistical data of the stock market, there's not a, not a huge any correlation really one way or the other, Democrat or Republican, there's not a huge, huge difference. So. I guess as long as it, it actually makes sense to go back and forth, right? Like Obama was was a Democrat, right? So we had two terms and then now we have a Republican. Maybe we'll get another two terms. Maybe we get one term and then back to Democrat. But as long as it shifts back and forth, I think it keeps things on the narrow. But again, I'm Canadian, so we tend to lean pretty left given our free healthcare and, and other things that we like to, uh, to throw out there for our citizens. Thank you for the question. DHowTo says, good evening, Mr. Roser. Good evening, good to see you guys on. Every week we're live. Tonight we're just, we're shooting the shit talking about uh, mentorship. And I think it's more important than, you guys know a couple of years ago, I started a mentorship program that was free, where I was you know giving a lot back and I got a lot out of it too. And I still believe whether you join a mentorship program or a coaching program or whatever, in whatever you wanna do, finding mentors whom you can emulate. Like even if that's, you know, Mr. My Mustache, you're reading his blog posts and you're learning about his mindset and changing something, right? Reading books, you, you can, an author could be your mentor. You could be reading and learning about things in the book, right? So learning and mentorship is the, the key piece to succeeding in whatever it is that you want to succeed in. So that's what I'm taking the time to um, dedicate today's video to is to mentorship. But you guys know it's an open show and whatever you guys want to talk about, you lead the conversation, not me. William says, hey Mike, William and Don here for the weekly Mike Rosart Show. William, great to see you on. Thank you for tuning in. And Biden is going to win. I don't know. Looks like that, that looks to be the case from what I've seen. But I'm sure we won't have any closure for a good while. I would have forgotten. Yeah. It's funny thing as Chung is a Canadian. So, uh, Andrew uh, McGlennon says, do you manage your own stock portfolio? If so, what's your upper limit for a percentage in a single name? Uh, I can answer both questions. One, um, I manage a small portfolio excuse me, for myself. Uh, but no, I actually have a financial advisor who's managing my stock portfolio. 
Reason for that is I'm able to actually lever up my stock portfolio if it was in um, within the private banking sector, they'll loan you back around 70% loan to value on your portfolio. And so, and then you can take that on a credit and invest it again and then borrow it back out again. So you can basically lever up, geez, around 80, 90%. So if you put a million bucks in stocks, you can buy $2 million in stocks by levering up. So it didn't make sense to do it myself with a margin account when I get a much better um, lending product associated with having that private banking financial advisor. So it was a high net worth uh, program. I'm still working on the, uh, the application for it. So I'll keep you guys um, posted on how that goes. But um, it sounds like an amazing uh, opportunity, which is why uh, I've decided to outsource that to professionals. Uh, but again, talking about what my upper limit is on a single hold. So if I was going to build myself a portfolio, I would need a significant amount of capital to be able to deploy into many different individual names. So my preference is to buy exchange traders that then go out and buy hundreds of other stocks. So you don't necessarily have a stock portfolio, you have an ETF portfolio, then those exchange traded funds or ETFs buy into all the different stocks in the market. And you can have thousands of different stock names and tickers in uh, one portfolio without having to have the transaction cost of buying you know, a little piece of every company. So that's my, recommendation uh, for a low fee um, type fund. So that's what I recommend is exchange traded fund or ETF. But if you're going to build a stock portfolio, let's say it's a dividend stock portfolio, my preference has always been from a diversification perspective to not have less than 20 names in your portfolio. So ideally you have 20 different um, companies and ideally there's some different sectors and some variety in what you're investing in, like not all tech, not all natural resources, not all commodities, whatever, um, not all real estate. Ideally, diversification is the secret to succeeding and to preserving wealth. I will make this one comment because people are gonna jump in here in a second and say, yeah, yeah, Mike, you were not very diversified. I will say diversification is not, is not the preferred path to building wealth quickly. It is the preferred path to keeping wealth, wealth preservation. Most of the multimillionaires and billionaires built, excluding Warren Buffett, et cetera, so forth, built their wealth by focusing on an area where they had a competitive advantage, a niche of some sort, and going all in. For myself, it was real estate. I, I found where I had a competitive advantage, I could buy properties, 80 cents on the dollar, and the day I closed, I made money. Before I didn't touch anything, the second I signed the paperwork, I was making money on the buy. And that was my competitive advantage, so I repeated it again and again. And when I was making 100, 200% return on investment, it didn't make sense to look at anything in the stock market. Where can I have full control and guarantee and replicate 100 to 200% return? And by the way, the market then appreciated on its own and I made 1,000% on some deals, right? Uh, on my down payments. So I couldn't do that and I couldn't lever up in the same way in the stock market. So I don't practice necessarily what I preach. Um, from a wealth preservation perspective, once you've built up some wealth, it makes sense then to diversify because if, you know, certain industry goes to crap, you're going to crap with it. But if you only had 10% of your wealth in that segment, it's like, okay, real estate market crashes, no big deal. I have, you know, I own a percentage of the US economy, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, I got pieces in those markets in many different segments from tech to, you know, real estate to whatever. And then when real estate crashes, you don't care because you're invested in tech or COVID happens and it crashes your Airbnb, but you don't care because you're also invested in Netflix and Netflix is doing fantastic during this time, right? So it's about having a little piece of everything. That's, that's the idea for wealth 
preservation, for capital preservation. And I think once you've built your fire portfolio or you've gotten to a certain point where it hurts to lose it, that's where you want to become more uh, risk averse. Start you know, focusing on, as I'm doing, selling some properties off and you know, pulling some of my wealth into other areas, other facets of, of business and in, in the economy where I can protect myself and grow. And growth is still important, but grow maybe at a little bit slower pace, more conservatively, more safely without with a focus on never losing money, right? Warren Buffett's first rule is to never lose money. It's so hard to recover it once you've lost it. Next question is, good evening, Mike. Totally disagree. The rampant taxation and spending curbs, future economic growth hurting all. It is what it is though. So Trevor's got a, a fair point um, about taxation and spending curbs, future economic growth. You know, there are, I, I've heard economists speak on both sides of this coin. And so there are, you know, Democratic economists and the Republican economists who have spoken out on different um, philosophies when it comes to economic growth. And my belief is that a dollar of capital invested grows faster for the economy than a dollar spent in that economy. Production is more important than consumption. And some economists believe that, you know, you throw a bunch of stimulus money into people's hands, people spend more, you lower interest rates, people spend more, and that stimulates the economy. I don't know. Um, it certainly is a part of it, but I think you need to be producing for GDP to grow and for the economy to be doing well. So if we're just consuming and going into debt over it, um, we're not going to grow, right? So there is a lot of thought that increased taxation would lead to, you know, decreased number of jobs because, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and investors are not going to put as much capital into said venture. I think that, you know, being an investor myself, I would think even if tax rates were go from 50% to 53%, 55%, whatever, um, is that 5% difference going to stop me from investing? And the answer is probably not. Um, that 5%, like if I make, say you're making a million dollars, say you're some rich entrepreneur, you're making a million dollars a year and post, you know, Biden, you used to take home 500 and now you take home 400. Are you gonna stop your business, shut it down and fire everyone? Likely not, uh, likely not. It's not gonna have a huge impact on most people. Now there'll be some economic policies that will deter you know, economic growth and et cetera and so forth. But what ends up happening is the, the extra taxation is invested back into the infrastructure, right? So it's gonna employ construction workers and union people, whatever, to to build things and it's gonna go back to the you know single moms and whatever. So the wealth just gets distributed to the bottom half. Um, it's not necessarily that the wealth, there may be less wealth in total because every dollar you invest into capital and the economy will have a net greater uh, impact than a dollar of consumption. But I think that, um, you know, the impact's not gonna be huge. It's not gonna have a, you gotta remember, like there are a lot of wealthy Democrats that still pull strings, right? Like, let's be honest here, there's still gonna be tax, tax to the polls for all the wealthy. It's really just the middle class that ever gets squeezed, right? But in general, the economic policies of Democrats tends to lean a bit more socialist, a bit more help the guy on the bottom, help them rise up. I grew up with nothing. And so I'm for a lot of those policies. I would be willing to pay five, 10% more personal tax to ensure that someone who grew up in my situation has the right to access school has the right to, you know, everyone should have the right to the internet and to access to, you know, information and whatnot. So I personally believe that it's okay to pay a little more tax to, within reason, to um, better 
the bottom half of society and give them a chance to climb the ladder. Now, I hate welfare. I'm, I'm anti-handout programs. But I am pro, here's a job. Like, here's a shovel, go dig. Here's a book, go learn. Uh, I think everyone should have opportunity and access to it. But if you're lazy and you don't want to work, you deserve to have nothing. Uh, but everyone should have the opportunity to grow, opportunity to climb the ladder, and should be you know, pretty much an equal opportunity for all. Now, I, I have wealth, so I will obviously want my kids to succeed at a faster rate. And so in some senses, I'm biased, right? And you know, most wealthy people you'd think would, would vote Republican, and most poor people should vote um, like a socialist, a Democrat, right? Here in Canada, we have the NDP, and we have uh, the conservatives and the liberals in the middle. And I think that, you know, people tend to vote selfishly. Like, what's going to help my family and me, right? And so the wealthy are going to vote one way and the poor are going to say, hey, um, you know, conservatives or the Republicans have never done anything good for me. So I'm going to vote for who's going to put more money in my pocket. And unfortunately, the bottom half is not doing well right now. And they have the controlling majority because it doesn't matter what your net worth is. Everyone gets the same one vote. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that entirely. I can see some arguments for... You know, some of the people who have the most control, like say someone who employs 10,000 people, they may, they maybe deserve an extra vote or something. I don't know, but that's undemocratic and we'd have to have a different conversation entirely to support that kind of conversation. But I'm getting out of the politics for now. Next question. Out of topic, but is it a good time to buy a house in this three months? Uh, it depends on where you are and it depends on the type of house you're trying to buy and so many different factors. You can't just say, um, I voted for Trump. Um, you can't just say one way or the other, you know, it's just a blanket statement. Hey, it's good to buy a house or not. If you're going to buy the house and it's going to be cash flow positive and you're going to house hack, it can make sense in any market. So I, it's so hard. There's so many different markets. You can't say that London's the same as Sarnia, the same as, you know, Detroit, the same as Toronto. They're not, they're all different markets. JC says, Hey Mike, I'm looking at a property that is half crawl space and half basement. Have you ever dealt with any properties like this or have you avoided crawl spaces outright? Any problems to consider? I have tons of properties that are, you know, a small portion basement and a small portion crawl space. They're very common in London. Um, what to avoid? You know, looking to make sure that the, the foundation's in, in decent shape is something you, you obviously want to look at. Um, from an insulation perspective, it's something you'll want to consider. I, I personally like to put down the poly underneath my, my crawl spaces and then insulate all the sidewalls just for, from a moisture uh, perspective. I prefer full basement to crawl space, but where the numbers make sense, it doesn't matter. Like a crawl space is perfectly acceptable, assuming there isn't massive, you know, water erosion or something going on in there. So just pop your head in your crawl space and see. Nothing necessarily wrong with it. Um, usually the basement will have an access to the crawl space. It'll be like, you'll be crawling like an army man on your, you know, arms and, arms and legs, but um, just investigate. Justin says, who's your mentor? That's a great question. Um, I've had lots and lots of mentors over, you know, my investing career, let's call it. I, I've looked to, at different times, so many, like, think of any investor that's in the space from Stefan Arneo to Matt McKeever to you know, pick, pick anyone. Like all of my friends and peers in the space have been my mentors at different times. And even some of my mentees have been at times playing that mentorship role from the perspective of, hey, does that make sense? Like, are you sure you've thought this through? And so that's where just having a good peer group that is also interested in whatever you're interested in. So if it's real estate, find people who are interested in real estate and talk to them about it. It's in that bouncing of ideas back and forth that iron sharpens iron and you both 
you know, benefit from those conversations and you both, uh, you know, end up in, mentored by each other, right? So ideally you have, you know, mentors who are above you too. And so there are times where, you know, I've, I used to read books like um, Early Retirement Extreme for a while on the frugality aspect, Jacob Lund Fisker was the introduction to the, you know, the math behind early retirement. In some ways, he was a mentor to me. It was great being able to go down to Chicago and uh, spend the night at his house and get to meet him. And it was a fantastic experience. Mr. My Mustache, for a time, when I read all of his blog posts, was like a mentor to me. I felt like when I was reading his, I was sitting at work reading at least a post or two of his a day, that it was like I was listening to him. You know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it felt like in some ways, Robert Kiyosaki was sort of mentoring me in some cases, right? Uh, Phil, one of my favorites was Phil uh, Pustovinovsky on YouTube. Now he's been doing it for a long time. He was the first YouTuber I ever found in real estate. That guy was talking about wholesaling and like, geez, it might be like 2012, I was watching this video. So he's been around longer than all the big YouTubers. And he, he used to be the number one biggest channel in the world, but you know, Grant and all those guys way surpassed him. Uh, but he's, he was a great mentor for a while. And he was free. He used to watch all his videos and learn his content. But yeah, just talking to people in the wild, like I'd run into realtors who have done a hundred deals and an hour talking with them at a listing or whatever. All of a sudden now they become my mentor for that hour. There's a guy here in London who, I don't want to drop his name. He doesn't like being on social media, but he's an older guy and um, a wealth of knowledge. Like speaking of, I haven't seen him in like six months. I'm going to go drop by his office and, and buy him lunch because he's one of those guys who has so much knowledge i'm not going to drop him but he's been a mentor to me in a lot of ways and i'd like to go see him again um, just pick his brain and it's interesting just to hear where when you talk to some of the older generation who really had massive success over a 40 or 50 year career to hear where their opinions differ from you know how things are done today so maybe technology plays a role that changes some of what they're saying but a lot of what they're saying there's there's gold wisdom there and so it's extracting that and saying how do i apply that in today's world and so yeah i mean I've just always looked to find people who are doing something at the next level or at the level, sometimes they're doing it at the lower level than you. I've met people who are, I met a guy who was doing Airbnb here in London, had a couple of properties, and he was able to show me more about Airbnb than, than anyone I could have met. He was doing it in the trenches, right? So I've learned sometimes from people who you might not think should be your mentor, but in that one space, at that one thing, they're better than you. And so you need to learn from them, right? And maybe you outgrow that mentor really quick but it's okay to have lots of mentors. I think that's, that's a big piece of it. We all, we all sharpen each other. Iron sharpens iron. Okay, next question. Div diversification, Trevor says, I like ETFs too for areas I'm not as competent in, but passive investing lacking price discovery can create dangerous bubbles. This is true. Um, that is overall all fair points. I think the average person doesn't have a competitive advantage. The average you know, stock investor, they don't know more than Warren Buffett. They don't have a, a financial background that allows them to audit, or even the time to audit financial statements and to read through and be an adequate value investor. And so if you can't develop a competitive advantage, you should buy the market. You will get 70%, whatever, and you'll do just fine. Um, so I do believe in that strategy working for the average person who doesn't have a competitive advantage. Now, if you can develop a competitive advantage and you want to invest the time, then you deserve to have a better, um, a better return for investing that time and that knowledge. Snake Eyes 11 says, what does a Biden presidency mean for the Canadian real estate market? I haven't really thought it through entirely, but I don't think it's going to have any major implications for us. Uh, we're not, 
I mean, we're tied. They're a big trading partner for us, but um, I don't know. I think actually it might even be better for Canadian real estate <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Um, one being uh, there might be a little bit of an exodus of capital to Canada. Um, two, there might be, I think, some increased trade policy between our two countries where Trump was pro, very nationalist. He's very, is this good for the United States? I don't know if Biden has the same mindset when it comes to trading with partners. I think he's more, is this good for everyone involved? Um, so, like, I know if I was the Canadian Prime Minister, I wouldn't want to do business with Trump. It, he, he's a bugger to try to, you know, score a deal on, right? I feel like he would just, he probably just bends Trudeau, which is our Prime Minister, over and just spanks him, right? Like, Trudeau's a pussy. Um, <laughs> should I buy a mansion or travel? Ah, Jonas, I like that question right there. My dude, um, that's tough, eh? That's, he's you know, on the other side of this wall over here right now. And we were having this conversation, like what's the next step? What's the next evolution? When you grow through the fire chain and you've kind of reached the top level of, of Lux Fire, what can be your reason to keep growing? Um, do you just you know elevate to the mansion or to the yeah, elevated lifestyle? Or do you say, hey, I'm gonna, even though I can afford more, I'm gonna stay in the, the humble, humble house and I'm just gonna focus on you know traveling or whatever. So that's a tough one. Um, I don't know, to each their own, I think. To each their own. Mike, have you ever read Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt? I cannot recommend it more. No, I've never taken a look. Someone send me an email with that because I'm gonna lose this chat and, and have no idea. But someone write down Economics in One Lesson and send me a message or an Instagram message. Matt says, we're balancing stocks in my TFSA. If you sell and buy something else without withdrawing the funds from the sale, does the new buy count as a new contribution or stays as the same funds that haven't left the TFSA? It stays as the same funds that hasn't left the TFSA. If it leaves the TFSA, then you have to wait to the next year to have your contribution reset effectively. But uh, yeah, buying and selling stock has no effect. It stays within your tax-free savings account. It doesn't affect contribution room unless you withdraw the money out. If it's just going from cash to equity in your account, then it doesn't affect anything. Good question. D. Howe Jew says, do you have an opinion about Florida raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2026? Just curious because you currently do business in Florida. Um, it'll probably raise the cost of everything. That's uh, all I can think of. Like when the minimum wage went up here in Ontario, we were at 10 bucks and we went up to 14. And that was a 40% increase over a short period of time on our minimum wage. And what we saw was the cost of everything jumped like 20%. Rents went up, everything went up. Um, and so people think they're getting more money in their pocket, but like the cost of rent and everything else just goes up because all the people on minimum wage now have 20, 30% more disposable income. So they're all gonna bid on the price of apartments, et cetera, and so forth. And everything just sort of rises in cost is typically what I saw in my local market. So I'd suspect that you might see the same thing in a place like Florida, especially in the, the market, like the real estate market, that's targeting those people who are in that 10 to $20 an hour income range, who are most affected by a minimum wage increase, right? Who are most likely to get that bump. So you can imagine the house is running for 1500 bucks a month, that's gonna get a bump in rents and probably be more valuable too, uh, as well, because you know the price of a house is an inverse of what it can rent for. That's, that's how cap rates work, that's the income approach to value property. So uh, I'm a, a big fan of, uh, you know, if that's the case, and I haven't looked into it, but if that's the case in Florida, maybe buying some real estate there would make some sense because especially in that like $200,000 price point that's most targeted and most uh, desired 
by that segment of the population because they, they stand to benefit the most from that sort of legislative change to minimum wage. But I'm sure I could do some more thinking on that and give you a better answer. For now, that's my initial thoughts. Wonder Woman says, hi Mike. Hello, how are you doing? Welcome to the stream. Snake Eyes 11 says, is it possible to get a bank mortgage for 80% and a private mortgage in the second position for the other 20%? Yes. However, many of the big A-lender banks are throwing in stipulations and conditions that you can't have a second charge mortgage on the property. Hey, we'll give you one mortgage 80% loan to value, but you're not allowed to put any seconds on. There are lawyers who after it closes will still throw a second on. I've seen it way too much. So the answer is yes, uh, all the time. It happens all the time. Uh, very, very common. A lot of deals are put together that way. Painting Contractor says, if you're not on the mortgage, can you something name on title for commercial real estate? The question, I think it was a copy and paste, got pasted and sort of blocked off in the YouTube comments. So I can see only half of it. But uh, it looks like you're talking about something with title. You can move someone in and out of title whenever you want. You could also do a bear and trust agreement, buy a property in a corp and then have it in trust for the person and then change it to the person and have almost no tax consequence when you do that. So that'd be how you transfer title with almost no tax consequence. Um, you can buy property in commercial uh, real estate in a corp. Uh, it's hard for me to know the question entirely, uh, but yeah, there's lots of flexibility there. You could even personally guarantee the corp and then get financing that way. But if you're not on the mortgage, um, I, I don't know how you, every mortgage I've ever dealt with, there maybe is an exception, but my understanding is whatever title reads, the mortgage is going to register in the same way, right? So if it's me and my mom on title, or me and my brother, or you and your brother, or whoever on title, the people on title are going to be named on the mortgage. That's just, they, they would wrap, whatever's on title, they're just going to put on the mortgage. So. If you are on title, then you will have to be on the mortgage and be liable. The only way to protect your interest on title without being on the mortgage is, oh, um, very simple. You would put the, you'd have your ex person buy the property, they would qualify for the mortgage, and you would represent your equity with a second mortgage. So you'd register a notice of interest on title saying, hey, I have some equity ownership in this property, but you'd register as a debtor. So you're not on the equity, you're, you're a debtor. Um, so you'd register the debt. Um, yeah, that'd be how you do it. You put a second mortgage on it or a third mortgage to protect your interest of your down payment or your whatever that you're giving to the person who, again, you're not going, not going to title with them. So if you want to have control, put yourself on the mortgage or register a mortgage on title. What's your favorite place to eat in London? Jake, um, depends on what I'm in the mood for, to be honest. Probably 168 Sushi is, is my favorite. They have the all-you-can-eat buffet and it's delicious. Snake Eyes 11 says, in general, you seem to not buy the 18th century homes with higher ceilings and prefer bungalows. Why is that? That's not necessarily the case. I, I do have properties with the higher ceilings. Um, lots of them with 10 foot ceilings, 11 foot ceilings, nine foot ceilings. I just, um, and you know, there are a lot of the bungalows in London here that have 10 foot ceilings and that are good conversion potential. The thing with the older properties that I've found is in London anyway, the basement headroom tends not to be legal. So underneath the beams, we tend not to have the proper 6.5. And so for, if your goal is a secondary dwelling unit conversion, which is a good play, um, it's not the only play, but if that's the play is to increase densification at a unit and add a value that way, the basements of the 
century homes from the 18th century tend not to make very good suites. They tend not to have great ceiling height, tend to have old ductwork that tends to uh, intrude on the, on the headroom. And they also tend to have old basements that tend to leak um, just because they're you know, a factor of being 200 years old. And so they don't make good candidates for maximizing cash flow. The basement tends to be unoccupied, which is fine. You know, I have properties that meet that metric. It's not that I don't buy properties like that. I do lots of properties in the portfolio that are like that. What says, from your experience of buying properties in Florida, what is the best way to buy property in the U.S. as a Canadian? Do you use a Canadian corp? Watts, there's lots of ways to do it. Um, I have to think about it, but probably my favorite would be avoiding having to file a personal U.S. tax return. And the only way to do that is to open a Canadian corp and have that Canadian corp then open a U.S. corp on the shares of that U.S. corp and then buy that way, or just have your Canadian corp buy the real estate. Uh, that way, your Canadian corp might have to file a return, but you as a person don't have to. There's reasons why you wouldn't want to personally file in the U.S. because then some of your income could be um, attributed into the U.S. You could have some issues there when you're filing a personal U.S. tax return. I remember talking to an accountant about it and they recommended going through the corp. That way, that corp just had that one property. It was a nice, simple, clean return to, to file there. So there are ways to do it. Um, there are also ways you could joint venture, set up a structure where you joint ventured, and that would be a great way to do it too. lead investor what's going on with florida any income coming in yeah we were rented out we took a, a longer term tenant on and we're in the process of potentially selling the property so it is listed right now on uh, on the market so i won't go too deep into that but uh, it's not been the easiest being so far from florida not being able to get down there etc so forth um having issues with contractors and covid and everything else it was I would have liked better marketing efforts, would have liked better photography. I would have liked to have not had a tenant living there when we're trying to sell it. But the tenant is paying all the expenses, we're making a little bit of profit and they're covering all the utilities. We have a good tenant staying there, taking care of the property. So it's um, it works out. It's working out for us. So we're not losing money. That's the important part, even through COVID. Alicia, hi, thank you for watching. Is at Jonas looking to JV? I can qualify for mortgages. Snake Eyes 11, send me an Instagram message or send Jonas an Instagram message. Yeah, very likely you, you know, if the terms are right, for sure. Antoine, I'm from Quebec looking to do the Burr method for the first time. I wanted your opinion on the single house rental market. Is it difficult to find tenants? Would you suggest to try multi longement? I don't know what the hell that is. I actually, maybe I'm, maybe I'm retarded or just having a brain fart, but I don't know what multi-logement is. Um, but I can answer the first part of your question. So you're from Quebec and you want to do the Burr method, but you want my opinion on the single house market. Um, there's typically less cash flow, but it's a lot less stress to manage a single tenant in a single house. They tend to take care of their own snow and their own, you know, grass, etc. It tends to have lower cash flow, but it is, you know, an easy, it's like, hey, having one house is much easier than when you have multiple units in a building, the tenants fight between the building, et cetera, so forth. The, the disadvantages of it are if you have a tenant gone, you have no rental income coming in. But on a duplex, one tenant leaves, the other tenant's covering the expenses. And so there's nothing wrong necessarily with single family investing, it's easier. Like 10 single family homes is way easier than 10 triplexes or 10 duplexes, way easier. So it's a 
nothing wrong with the strategy. I don't know what the second part of your question is. So maybe you can rephrase for me and I can help. Why would you diversify away from the Burr method? So the buying, renovating, basically cashing out all your money after you finish renovating. Uh, or is it best to snowball the burn to retirement? It seems a lot safer than flipping, for example. Well, Andrew, there's not a huge difference between the burr and the flip. Um, a lot of my burrs became sales down the road. And so you could burn after two years sell and that might be considered a flip, but I don't consider that a flip. My intention was to burr and it was to cash flow it, but I just so happened to sell it. So I look at, I have an exit strategy on every property I buy. Even if it's not immediate, there has to be an out. If things don't work out, I want to be able to walk away with a profit. So it's about you know, finding that safe exit. And I think that with the burr, you have a really good safety margin. So you're not you know, scrounging to try to say, you know, how am I gonna get out of this and make a profit? Or if things go bad, you know, how do I exit? Every deal, even when I flip, I go with the intention to burr because I may have to hold the property. And if I have to hold it, can't sell, I want it to be holding a strong cash flow property. So I only flip you know, 1% rule type properties. I target investors on the sale. That way, if I have to keep the property or if I decide I want to keep the property when I'm done with it, I do. Um, so that's always been my intention. And I think you're right. The Burr is not a diversified real estate investing strategy. The Burr typically requires you to put a lot of capital in and continue to the cycle. Right? If you have two or three Burrs going at once, that might take all your capital. But real estate is a fairly safe asset class and Burring, if done properly, gives you a good amount of equity in the property. The thing with burring that's not so great is the time. You've got to put in a lot of time. To find a, a burr in this market requires you to have some sort of competitive advantage fact. And then in order to be able to execute on that burr, a lot of time and a competitive advantage or both. So that's where the burr is like, um, like if I told you, hey, come work for my company and I'll pay you a 40% return on your money. But if you don't work for my company, I pay you 10% return on your money. That's what real estate investing is like. Like you get a job, real estate investing, you have to do, it's a business. You have to work at it and put time in and energy, but you get a greater return. And so if you didn't put any time into the burr, it would be a complete fail. The burr requires input of expertise and energy and money, uh, but specifically the expertise and the energy. And that's why you get the higher return is you can develop that competitive advantage. And one of those is injecting your expertise and your time specifically. So it's, it's a very time intensive strategy, whereas a diversified portfolio might give you a lower return, but is lower risk and no time commitment or pretty much no time commitment. Sushi, yummy. Antoine says triplex or more. Oh, okay. So I guess that means triplex or more. Uh, okay. So that's what that word must mean. Yeah. I mean, there's increased stress and increased cash flow with multi multi units until you get into the bigger multifamily and then you're competing against institutional money. So typically anything over here here in London, anything over a six bucks starts to get into institutional capital and you're competing at really low cap rates, like four and five cap rates here, sometimes six. It's ridiculous. There's almost no cash flow there. So the big multifamily, I don't know how people do it. They get really cheap financing and that's how they make it work. Um, but there's just not a ton of really good margin there. Um, but in, yeah, in a small multifamily, you can really get some sweet cap rates, some good cash flow. But again, extra time, more work. Any tips on writing essay dissertations? I'm in my final year of my business degree. <laughs> Any tips on writing essays? Jeez, 
I haven't written an essay since university and I my last essay is probably in 2013 so I'm a little rusty for giving out uh, tips but whenever I wrote business cases in, in 2013 and 2014 I always focused on being clear and concise I found that the best hook was some sort of eye-opening statistic or some sort of eye-opening finding of my you know herein I'll explain later said report whatever I would start with like the juiciest piece uh, and just be very very clear with what you want to say and uh, write it to your write it to your evaluator <laughs> go and talk to your evaluator grill them find out what they're looking for and then write the thing to the person that's going to be evaluating it that's how I've done everything that's how I scored A's on every paper it was I found what the professor wanted to hear and I wrote it to them as I'm writing and I'm thinking how they're going to be reading the sentence what they're going to be thinking so play the game play into it lean into it that's School's a game. You go in there to get a, you know, an education you can just get for free on the internet. The goal is to get a piece of paper that says you did well in the program. So you go to the job and then you can leverage that and say, hey, I did great in this program. I knew how to follow the rules and how to beat the game. And the game of school is just like a game of real estate, like a game of life. Just follow the rules in the system, find a way to get a competitive advantage, and then you win the game. Some people want to tear the game down, break the rules, but that's a lot harder than just playing the game. Friend wants me to help him buy a primary property. I don't want to be on the mortgage with him. Should I just be on the deed? I don't know. So if he's on, if he's on the deed, you could maybe co-sign the mortgage and not be on deed with him. But then you're liable for the mortgage without being on the deed. You can't go the other way around. You can't be on the deed and not on the mortgage. I, I haven't seen that done before, ever. If you're on title uh, as an equity holder, as an owner, then you're gonna be on the mortgage. Is there any way he can remove me from the deed without my permission? No, he, you'd have, he'd have to sign. There'd be no way. I mean, maybe I'm trying to think of a situation where you owed him money and then he was able to sue you and get a judgment saying you owed him this money and then take your equity position to pay back that debt that you owed or something. That's the only time I think by force of court that you could lose the property. But um, no, just buy one property together, he can't remove you from title without your signature. You can't even sell the property without your signature if you're on title. Ah, it's the French word for multi-unit. That's what I was wondering. Do how to, he will have a mortgage. I will just pay cash to help him out. Maybe there's something there, I don't know. Um, just be careful, structure, you know, if you're gonna lend someone money, make sure you secure on title or get a you know, proper loan agreements, make sure you lend to the right person, make sure you're, you know, et cetera and so forth. You can get burned, just be careful guys. Again, this uh, painting contractor in Florida Coatings, I see part of your questions. This 18 unit complex, eight units vacant, renovated them, rent some of them out, property manager said leads are slow. Any advice? Uh, get a better property manager. <laughs> that's, that's the first piece. Find, maybe find a dedicated leasing manager or a, a leasing agent who will just lease the units and have that separate from the property manager. Typically, the best leasing people are not the same people who are the best at managing the property and doing the maintenance typically not the same skill set is what I've seen. There are exceptions to every rule though. Um, maybe you could try offering incentives like offer half a month's rent as a bonus up front for someone who moves in. Then you can get a little bit higher rent and, and get the units rented out. Offering those incentives is better than having it vacant. Xenocryption says, not sure why, but YouTube suggested you to me. I barely understand what's going on here. 
well, I'm in Toronto, so maybe algorithm suggested you since we're both Canadians. Hey, awesome. I'm glad that YouTube's actually promoting the content and you're able to find uh, my content and hopefully you can get some value from it. That's, it's all free. So enjoy the hundreds of hours of rantings and discussions about everything from personal finance and real estate to mentorship and life, how you live the best life you can live. So I'm in Toronto, you know, a few times a, a year. So definitely, um, definitely share that the common ground there. Last question. Kron says, Hey Mike, where can I get an enforceable private lending contract that'll protect me? And what is the downside if I ever went to a legal battle? Uh, so a good contract is one where everyone signed it. You've had a witness to, to sign that as well, but it's about who you're lending to. That's the most important piece. So making sure they have a strong net worth, make sure you can verify that strong income, those sorts of things. Ideally you can go and see them know where they live. They don't pay you. Uh, but contracts are only enforceable so far as you're willing to sue. So you have to litigate to enforce the contract. Even if it's a secured on title of a property or secured as a GSA or general service against a business, um, general security of asset against a business, you're going to have to litigate to you know, get your money back if they default. So that's what is the important piece. But as far as contracts go, find a good lawyer. They can pass you some great contracts. I've been able to just uh, purchase contracts along the way from other investors and even from my own lawyer help me draft some, some pretty good promissory notes and some stuff like that. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. hundred percent appreciate it. No problem. Happy to help brother. Bought for appreciation and got burned. I'm not sure who bought for appreciation. The 18, 18 unit. I've lost the context here. Julia says, how do I get my bank information to them? To who? Who are you trying to give your bank information to? I'm, I'm confused here. Don't give your bank information to anyone you don't know. Hi, Mike. Love your videos, brother. Thanks. Appreciate it. Who pays for litigation? Typically, you're going to have to front the money of litigation, but in most contracts, you're going to have a clause written in there that if they default and you have to go after them, they'll be liable for all the legal costs, plus typically a 5% or $5,000 could be a flat amount that they have to pay you for the hassle, uh, the stress. So as a mortgage lender, you want them to default because typically the costs of going after them and taking the property gives you all of their equity in the property too. So you'll tack in like $30,000 fees as they, they default. As a mortgage lender, it sounds dirty, but as a mortgage lender where you're you know, being smart about putting 75% loan to value, you hope that they default because you're gonna get a huge payday. Uh, it's actually in your best interest if your contract's written properly that they default. Now it's a hassle, pain in the ass to go after them and take the title of the property and go after the money, but it can be, you can be very well compensated when someone defaults. The, the courts do not look kindly on default. And so that person will get, if they sign the contract and you can prove it, then they're going to have to pay out the nose. If you've written your contract properly, they're going to pay for, for defaulting. You're going to have to take their house and their car. <laughs> Thanks Mike. Super bummed with the election. Have a good evening. That is what it is, right? I haven't been following. I didn't even know there was a result yet. I thought they were still being contested, but maybe there's an answer now. Who pays? I answer that question. Thanks for the time, Mike. I was responding to Dave Ramsey, 100% cash down only. Ah, okay, got you. Subscribing just in case. You seem like you know what you're talking about. I'll form an intelligent question for you next time you go live. Well, I'll see you next Wednesday. Every Wednesday, live, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you everyone so much for all the questions. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you on next week. And if I didn't answer your question this week, for some reason I skipped over your question, I'd be happy to answer it in the comments for everyone to see. So instead of sending me an Instagram message at Mike Rosehart, 
follow me along there for the stories. I post six to eight times daily. But instead of that, how about you throw it in the comments after this video is published and I will happily answer it for everyone to see. I promise. Bye everyone, have a good uh, evening. Remember the secret to unlocking a wealth through you, three levers in your control of your financial future. Spend less, earn more, and maximize the difference, the returns on the difference. So spend less, earn more, maximize returns. That's what you gotta do, those are the three levers to build your financial future. Thank you everyone, have a good evening.